Self-harm can be separated into different forms, including unintentional self-harm, self-injurious behavior, non-suicidal self-injurious behavior, suicide attempts, and completed suicide. Non-suicidal self-injury is the intent to harm yourself without wanting to die. This includes things like burning, cutting, headbanging, or punching a wall. But this is different from unintentional self-harm where we might see, for instance, kids with developmental challenges bang their heads, slap themselves, or pick at their skin. In this episode, we will discuss how to assess, discuss, and treat non-suicidal self-injury in children and adolescents. Dr. Hanny Flaherty joins us today to help us unpack this topic. She's an assistant professor and chair of advanced clinical practice at Yeshiva University. She's also the president and clinical director of the Collaborative People Clinical Group in New York City, New York. Welcome to the Carlat Psychiatry Podcast. This is another episode from the Child Psychiatry Team. I'm Dr. Josh Fader, the Editor-in-Chief of the Carlat Child Psychiatry Report and co-author of the Child Medication Factbook for Psychiatric Practice, second edition coming out soon, and Prescribing Psychotropics. And I'm Mara Government, a licensed clinical social worker in Southern California with a private practice. In a 2017 systematic review, the prevalence of non-suicidal self-injury was about 7.5% to 46.5% for adolescents, 38.9% for university students, and somewhere between 4 to 23% for adults. The first incident typically occurs around ages 12 to 13. However, we do not know whether these numbers have changed with the pandemic. With such high numbers, you might be wondering why non-suicidal self-injury is so common in kids and adolescents. Children are drawn to this behavior when they experience emotional pain but cannot control the situation. The opposite also happens. Teens experiencing emotional numbness might harm themselves to feel something. In either case, there's relief with the sensation of pain. Other adolescents use non-suicidal self-injury to communicate pain, and some use it to punish themselves. Dr. Fader, how is non-suicidal self-injury related to suicidal thoughts and behaviors? Is one a risk factor for the other? Can they coexist? Mira, a significant number of adolescents and adults report a history of both behaviors. However, the association between the behaviors is complex. Non-suicidal self-injury and suicidal thoughts and behaviors have unique risk factors, and although non-suicidal self-injury is associated with a myriad of negative consequences, a developing body of research suggests that non-suicidal self-injury may increase the risk for attempted suicide. Mental health professionals need to identify and treat non-suicidal self-injury, and we also need empirically supported prevention programs. Dr. Flaherty, what conditions tend to be comorbid with non-suicidal self-injury? Until recently, non-suicidal self-injury wasn't its own diagnosis. It was considered a symptom of borderline personality disorder, and there was no real way to separate it. So if you had a client who engaged in non-suicidal self-injury, you were looking at borderline personality disorder for other, you know, criteria, diagnostic criteria. And the last DSM, it was starting to become reported as its own diagnostic criteria. 
so that it can be linked to depression or other disorders like anxiety and borderline personality disorder. Because then we also get into the social stigma that more females than males are diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. Therefore, more females than males were being diagnosed with non-suicidal self-injury. It's safe to assume that if you were a healthy, well-functioning adolescent, you're not going to self-harm as a way to cope. When determining whether a behavior is or is not non-suicidal self-injury, pay attention to the intention behind it. Someone who pierces their ears because of aesthetics or memorializes a loved one with a tattoo is not engaging in non-suicidal self-injury. However, someone who pierces their ears because the act and the pain of piercing makes them feel better is. If someone is refusing food because of a distorted body image, that's not non-suicidal self-injury, But if they do it because the hunger pain makes them feel better, we do categorize that as non-suicidal self-injury. Dr. Flaherty, how do you differentiate non-suicidal self-injury in kids with developmental challenges who might engage in such things as headbanging, slapping themselves, or or picking at their skin? I would put that in unintentional self-injury. They're not necessarily thinking about it and planning it in the same ritualistic way that someone who is self-harming is. It sounds more impulsive, but you'd also put people with developmental delays into that category because they may not be making the decisions in the same sort of way due to their limitations. So I think that's really important to differentiate. If non-suicidal self-injury is the symptom, the cause is very different. But I separated into um, unintentional self-harm self-injurious behavior, non-suicidal self-injurious behavior, and suicide attempts, and then successful suicide. So that could even fall under self-injurious behaviors. We would also put like a trichotillomania in there. Is there a difference in non-suicidal self-injury between genders? More females are reported to engage in non-suicidal self-injury. The question is if that's report or if male behavior looks different. You know, a lot of times a boy will get angry and punch the wall repetitively but that won't be reported as non-suicidal self-injury. It'll be reported as boys being boys. Is non-suicidal self-injury different across cultural or racial groups? Um, Again, it's about reported cases. Uh, There is reports that it's more Caucasian and white females followed quickly by African-American and Hispanics. But again, this is reported to therapists. So very often there's other barriers to care for minority populations, so they're not actually getting care, therefore not being reported. So we don't know if they're actually doing it less or just seeking treatment less. How much of non-suicidal self-injury is driven by social exposure? If an adolescent self-harms, and people in their social circle are more likely to self-harm also. But I think that goes for most adolescent high-risk behaviors. That goes for substance use, that goes for sexual acting out behaviors. So yes, if it's discussed in their social situation, in their social community, in their peer group, then yes, they are more likely to engage in this if they're having some pre-existing conditions, like we said, if they're feeling upset, if they're feeling depressed. An adolescent who is functioning relatively well, most likely won't turn around and go, gee, just because, you know, my best friend is cutting, I want to try it. It would be more, I'm in a very low point. I'm feeling out of control. I'm feeling emotional. I know this works for someone else. I'm going to try it. 
While individuals who engage in non-suicidal self-injurious behavior do not do so with the intention to die, continued behavior poses physical risks. For some, the self-harming behaviors will dissipate on their own, but for others, it can increase in severity like other addictive behaviors. There's a theory that non-suicidal self-injury releases endogenous opioids, reducing pain sensitivity, which can result in more episodes and increase severity to feel relief from the behaviors. There's also a risk that self-harm can result in infection or even unintended death if the injuries are severe. Dr. Flaherty, how do you assess for possible non-suicidal self-injury? There's a lot of fear, especially among young social workers or young therapists, that if we ask the questions, we're going to somehow put the thought in the client's head. And the statistics behind that are completely wrong. If you talk about suicidality or non-suicidality or ask those questions in your assessment, someone who's not thinking about self-harming isn't going to turn around and be like, you know what, great idea. Thank you for giving me that idea. I'm going to go harm now. They're not going to do that. But what we are is they're more likely to say, yes, they are self-harming. And then we can help them. We are good at our jobs. We save clients. So you have to ask the questions. It's when you don't ask the questions that we get into trouble. They won't feel safe talking to you. How do you ask about non-suicidal self-injury in a way that helps patients feel comfortable talking about it? I would build up to it a little bit. So I would start with some of the depressive symptoms. For example, I ask about the stress and distress, but I would say it in a humanistic way. You know, how have things been going for you? Is there any increased stressors right now? How do you normally manage these stressors? Have you been increased worry about these things? How has that been going? And then I really use the normalized support and ask technique. So I'll say, you know, when people are experiencing distress, sometimes they'll harm themselves. I'll, you know, a lot of adolescents sometimes turn to this sort of behavior. Have you ever done that? And normalize it. And then support as you, you know, this is a safe place to talk about this. How do you manage the child's or teen's concerns about confidentiality? Well, we usually do that at the very beginning. We give our famous line, what you say here stays here unless you're harming yourself or others. And yes, if you're harming yourself, I am going to tell your mom, I'm going to do whatever I can to keep you safe because I care about you. It's my job and I care about you. But let's finish talking about what's going on. And then you and I can talk about if or what we're going to tell your mom. And we can also tell your mom together. What do you ask next if they admit they are engaging in self-harm? How are you self-harming? What's going on? And then you do have to do the suicidal assessment right away. Have you thought about harming yourself so severely that you would end your life? Have you thought about ending your life? Because you have to rule out suicidal ideation and intent immediately because you have to draw that line between suicidal behavior and non-suicidal behavior. If we've determined that the child is not acutely suicidal, what do we do next? I would then also ask questions about how and when they cut. It's very common to have some ritualistic behavior to it. Either they go into their room and they keep everything in a certain place or they turn on music and they sit down in the same spot. There's usually a ritual to it. So you want to understand that ritual. One, to help with intervention, but also to help really get an understanding about this behavior and the danger level. 
can someone really do harm with a safety pin on their leg? Yes. Is a likelihood that going to happen? Not so much. If they're going into the, the kitchen and being very impulsive and taking a kitchen knife to their wrist, that's a much higher level of risk. You know, so I always want to find out about that how they feel before, how they feel after, how often are they thinking about it during the day? Do they only think about it when they're angry, sad, or are they constantly thinking about self-harming? Dr. Flaherty, do you believe it is important to see the patient's injury? So yeah, so that's always a question is whether or not you ask to see the injury. And this becomes even more complicated if you're doing telehealth. So my rule of thumb is if it's in a location that they don't have to remove clothing, I would often like to see it just so because they may say it's not deep and I may take a look and it may be very deep and require medical care. You know, you're doing an assessment of whether or not this client is going to be going to the ER. If they tell me they don't cut so deep and it's on their arm, I may ask to see it and it may be much deeper and infected. And then we're going to the ER, not because you're suicidal, but because that needs to be looked at. Helping a patient talk to their parents, it is important to validate the teen's concerns and use it as a therapeutic moment. You might say things like, we need to tell your parents about this because we need help to support you in finding better ways to manage the challenges in your life. This includes all the details of the self-harming, what it is and how often they do it. You should prep the adolescent ahead of time so that they know exactly what you will say. When you talk to parents about non-suicidal self-injury, try to use a calm, soft tone of voice when speaking with them. For example, you can approach the conversation saying something along the lines of, Riley brought some heavy stuff to her appointment this week, and as she was talking about her anxiety and her depression, she mentioned to me that one of the ways she copes is to self-harm. Now, I know that sounds scary, but unfortunately, it's common with this age group, and we want to tell you what's going on and what we can do to support her. When we take these steps, parents feel engaged with us and the adolescent doesn't feel like we've betrayed them by breaking confidentiality. We need a long-term working relationship with both the parents and the adolescents. We also plan with the teens so that if parents become upset, we will allow space for that and we can take the lead in the session. Dr. Fader, how should clinicians approach the conversation regarding the disposal of sharp objects? For someone who's suicidal, you need to prioritize safety. Secure dangerous items such as knives and other sharp objects, medications, including over-the-counter meds like Tylenol, Motrin, and aspirin, other poisonous household products, ropes and cords, and of course, secure firearms, preferably out of the house and off the premises. Hospitalize the person if necessary. By contrast, when someone's non-suicidal, it's good to empower that person to dispose of their self-harming instruments on their own in front of their parent, rather than having the parent do a sweep of the room. This not only empowers the adolescent, but also helps the parent understand the adolescent's ritual and see things better from their teen's perspective. This in turn can lead to a better communication and problem solving as a teen. Do you recommend parents do body checks to look for injuries? In some situations, body checks may become necessary, but overall, body checks can complicate treatment. Self-harm doesn't stop just because the teen has acknowledged it. And if it is set up as a bad behavior that needs policing, the teen may try harder to hide it. 
So it's better to involve parents in a plan of what they can do instead if there's an urge to self-harm rather than checking for potential injuries. Let's move forward and discuss treatment. Dr. Flaherty, what does treatment look like for non-suicidal self-injury? Sure. So I think with any high-risk behavior, we immediately do some harm reduction techniques. Three most common for non-suicidal self-injury is the rubber band technique, where we have them wear rubber bands around their wrist if that's where they're self-harming or their ankle or wherever they're self-harming and literally snap the rubber bands instead of self-harming. Again, it's a harm reduction technique. We prefer that they didn't have to feel pain in order to feel better, but this is a non-lethal, non-dangerous type of way. Same with an ice cube. Holding an ice cube will feel painful, but isn't as dangerous as self-cutting or, or burning. The other one is tearing a piece of paper and actually feel quite cathartic in the same way, depending on what their self-harming behavior was. It's important to note that all three methods are intended to reduce harm as we explore the root causes of the intense emotions through talk therapy. These methods are not meant to be used in lieu of more definitive treatment, and they need to be monitored because some patients will actually use them to continue to self-harm, which makes these methods controversial at times. There are several talk therapies to address non-suicidal self-injury, including developmental group therapy, mentalization-based treatment for adolescents, dialectical behavioral therapy for adolescents, or therapeutic assessment and brief intervention. You can get training in these techniques to treat the patient yourself or refer out to someone else in your community. Developmental group therapy is for kids 12 to 18 and includes behavioral, dialectical, social skills, and interpersonal aspects. Mentalization-based treatment for adolescents helps teens and families understand the role of feelings and behavior. Dialectical behavioral therapy for adolescents focuses on building skills and reducing maladaptive behavior. Therapeutic assessment and brief intervention is a 30-minute treatment where the teen identifies the challenge, clarifies the motivation for change, and creates a letter with a plan for change. What about medications? While there are no definitive medications for non-suicidal self-injury, there are small studies that suggest that medication is an option to treat co-occurring conditions such as depression, anxiety, PTSD, borderline personality disorder, and others in conjunction with psychotherapy. Overall, the most important steps for supporting the treatment of kids and teens with non-suicidal self-injury involve following an in-depth assessment and developing a treatment plan to reduce the non-suicidal self-injury behaviors and address the underlying causes. Use a conversational approach when you talk about non-suicidal self-injury with a patient. But if you are looking for a semi-structured guide, the book, Treating Self-Injury, has a review of formal assessments. Look over the assessments before the adolescent comes in so you know what to cover. Any final thoughts, Dr. Flaherty? You know, coming to therapy is the most impacting factor for changing this behavior because we can teach them different ways to manage it and appropriate coping mechanisms. Our upcoming printed interview with Dr. Flaherty will be available for subscribers to read in the Carlisle Child Psychiatry Report. 
Hopefully people will check it out. Subscribers get print issues in the mail and email notifications when new issues are available on the website. Subscriptions also come with full access to all the articles on the website and CME credits. And everything from Carlet Publishing is independently researched and produced. There's no funding from the pharmaceutical industry. Yes, the newsletters and books we produce depend entirely on reader support. There are no ads and our authors don't receive industry funding. That helps us to bring you unbiased information that you can trust. As always, thanks for listening and have a great day.